Magnus Podcast, Episode 2, How to Read the Bible. for a treat today because we're sitting down with Dr. Patrick Downey. Uh, If you don't know, Dr. Downey is the author of Desperately Wicked. He's also the author of Serious Comedy, The Philosophical and Theological Significance of Tragic and Comic Writing in the Western Tradition. Dr. Downey has advanced degrees from both Boston College and Harvard He's a brilliant writer, thinker, philosopher, and currently a professor of philosophy at St. Mary's College. So with these first three episodes of the Magnus Podcast, we're going to be giving you lectures, uh, brand new, never before heard lectures from three professors of either the philosophy department or the great books department at St. Mary's College. So stick with something of a theme. So in this episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Downey, about how to read the Bible, which might sound like a really funny question. Of course, the Bible is intended to be read through the inspiration of its author. But it's also a story about you, about me. And so understanding certain key principles of Scripture that, as we will see, are sort of hiding in plain sight, can make the entire project much more meaningful for us the uh, the reader, and in one sense, the subject of sacred scripture. I really enjoyed taping this. I think you're going to love listening to it. For more, magnusinstitute.org. That's magnusinstitute.org. And without further ado, here's Dr. Patrick Downey. All right, good. Okay, the question is uh, how to read the Bible. Perhaps the best way to think about how to read the Bible is to raise the question of authority as an authorship. What is the authority of this book, which is to say who is responsible for what it says, and which is also to ask who is its ultimate author? Is it the same author who fashioned all of creation, or is its author another creature who has no authority over any other creature because they have both been authored along with everyone else? To situate this question in terms of the Bible, let's uh, look at an interesting prohibition, the, the first commandment. Moses' uh, Ten Commandments speaks to this issue of authorship. Uh, and it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So what's with this prohibition, the very beginning of the commandments? It's a prohibition against any human author that would think that they could portray an image of what you cannot see in the heavens, what you cannot see under the earth, or you cannot see under the ocean. Because for a human being to make such an image, it's to worship a false god, because the only one that can know these things that we literally cannot see would be somebody that grasps the whole of the world, because he created it. Therefore... No human being can do this because the only one that could make an image of these things would have to be the one who authored all of those things, that knows them 
through whom all those things were made. So in other words, the only book, the only thing authored that we can trust that is not a false image of the whole, of the unity of the universe, would be something written, authored by God himself. That's the authority that the Bible must have if it's not to be a human idol. Uh, so so consider this in the light of uh, other famous poems, you could say, or books that are authored like Homer's uh, Odyssey or his Iliad or Virgil's Aeneid. In these stories, you have images of what's in heaven with the gods, what's underneath the earth, Poseidon, and then you also have uh, under the ocean, Poseidon, but also what is under the earth. You have voyages into the underworld to see what happens after death and who the heroes are and the good or bad people. All these things are images made by these great poets that has a hero in them, and they give you essentially an image of the whole authored by Homer or Virgil. So these essentially are idols. They are not the true reality that we live in. Uh, How is the Bible different from these things? Well, it's different in the same way that Dante's Divine Comedy is different than them. Because the oddity of Dante's comedy is instead of the hero being uh, Aeneas in Virgil or Odysseus in Homer, the hero is the poet himself. Where did Dante get such an idea? Well, he got it from the Bible itself. Because the Bible has as its hero... The person that created all of reality, he's the main character in the story. From the very first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the hero of the story, God, who created the heavens and the earth. But he's also the hero in the sense that he's going to show up in the middle of the story and be the main character, the culmination of the story. So how would Hamlet be able to understand the world that he's living in if you're to try to figure it out? He cannot comprehend the world because he's not Shakespeare. So how will he ever know the whole that he lives in? He could only know the whole if Shakespeare himself shows up in the story and reveals it to him. If Shakespeare becomes a character and speaks to Hamlet, then and only then could Hamlet comprehend the poem that he's a part of. We are in that position. The Bible is Shakespeare showing up in his story and revealing that he is the creator of the world, God, but also he is showing how he can let us in on his creative act in that story in itself. So that's why we must understand God as the author of Scripture to understand why it's authoritative to us and why any other human work made by anyone else rather than God himself would not be authoritative because it's not authored by God. So uh, this is so take one example of this. When Jesus shows up in the Gospels, he speaks like all sorts of prophets, like Moses, etc. But people respond to him in a shocked manner because they say he speaks with authority. What is that authority? He's speaking with the author of the universe's authority. And this makes all the difference in terms of how we read the Bible. Uh, to to see uh, this more clearly, let's kind of ask an obvious question. Well, the Bible doesn't seem to be one book. It seems to be two books. You have the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Hebrew Scriptures, and then you have the New Testament. Well, is this one book? What do you mean by the Bible? Well, to see how they relate, take this relationship between two characters, John the Baptist and Jesus. When John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he has a strange relationship to time. He says, he who comes after me is greater than me, and I am not worthy to unlace the uh, laces on his sandals. And he says, even though I precede him, he who comes after is better and superior. So this is a way of seeing the, the axis of the Bible, that the main character is God who's outside the entire story, the way an author is outside of a novel that he writes. But then the novel, like any other novel, starts at the beginning, it proceeds, and it temporarily goes step by step by step until you get to John. 
And then John talks about somebody who's going to come after him, and yet the one coming after him precedes him and is superior to him. So now you have two axes. You have the horizontal axis of time. You have the vertical axis of God as the author. Jesus relates to John as that vertical axis to God outside the entire novel, to the author himself, is to this character that precedes him. So this is the oddity of how John presents himself. Because he's trying to deal with how would one in a novel comprehend the whole of that novel from within the novel sequentially. And so uh, to add more to this, to think of John as uh, in terms of what you might call a figure or a type. This is another thing that relates the Bible together. You have images that repeat themselves with differences. Okay, John is baptizing in the wilderness. Well, where have we heard of the wilderness? What is baptism? Something to do with the water. Well, let's go, oh, it's also in the River Jordan. So you go backwards, you realize, well, yeah, there's this character, Joshua, that led the people through the River Jordan uh, after they've been in the wilderness, like John, for 40 years. Well, before the people of Israel got in the wilderness, they crossed the Red Sea because they had to get out of Egypt. Why did they have to get out of Egypt? Because Pharaoh was murdering the Hebrews, and Moses was going to be their leader, Why is Moses called Moses? Because his name means being drawn out of the water, because he was one of those Hebrews threatened to be murdered by Pharaoh, who's going to kill all the Hebrew children. So he floated through a little basket through that water. His name means being drawn out of the water. He floated through this water of violence. Well, then you go backwards further. What do we know about water and violence? Well, you have Noah's flood. And in that flood, you had Noah floating through an ark. Well, why is he floating through the ark, and what is the flood from? The flood is brought about by God because he says the imagination of mankind's heart was only evil continuously. So the flood, in one sense, is the embodiment of that evil imagination. And yet God mercifully spares Noah, leads to the future by floating through that flood. And now you go forward, and you have Moses in a basket. You have Israelites going through the Red Sea. You have the people of Israel crossing the Jordan, then you get John the Baptist, who now baptized in the River Jordan. Why does he precede Jesus? Because to understand who Jesus is, you must see him as prepared for by John the Baptist. That prepares him. And yet, even though it prepares for Jesus, Jesus, who's being prepared for, precedes John the Baptist, was there from the very beginning. So he's the one that ties all those images together and leads you all the way back to the very second verse of the Bible. I always read the first one, but now let's read the the second verse from Genesis. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Well, what were these waters? Somehow they're tied into Noah's flood. They're tied into uh, Pharaoh's genocidal designs. They're tied into the River Jordan. They're tied into the very baptism of John. What's his baptism for? The forgiveness of sins. Somehow sin is there at the very beginning, not absolute beginning, but the second beginning of the Bible in the second verse. And somehow what's going on in the second verse is people are spared this sin. Sin is tied into waters. There's more we can say about where it comes from, but somehow it's tied in there from the very beginning, except for the first verse, and that's God creating out of nothing. Well, Why does John the Baptist precede Jesus? Because Jesus was there in the first verse, creating out of nothing. As you see in the prologue of the Gospel of John, Jesus is the word through through whom all things were made that were made. He's the one that speaks and is with his Father, speaking all of the uh, creation into existence. That precedes the second verse, because the second verse is how people are spared from sin, 
the baptism of John, but then the baptism of Jesus that comes after that is greater, and it'll go back to the beginning where you'll have an absolutely new beginning of coming back from the den, coming out of the water, not as just spared like Noah coming out of the ark, but you'll come out of the water as being born again like the waters of your mother's uh, womb breaking. And so how can he do such a thing? Again, because of who he is. He's the one that brought everyone into existence. He's the one that can bring everyone back from the dead if you die with him, are baptized in the baptism of Jesus. And just to see that this is the types that are that's going to connect the whole Bible together, you go to the very end of the Bible, because it has the beginning in Genesis, it has the end in Revelation. You go to Revelation 21, John has an image of the New Jerusalem falling from heaven. Uh, and what does he see when he sees this new heavens and new earth? He also sees that the sea was no more. So the very second verse of Genesis disappears and all you have is the first verse and that's the God who creates out of nothing is also the God that brings life from the dead and he's also Jesus the main character in the story so that's how you have to read the Bible on the vertical axis relative to God as the author and then you can sequentially move through horizontally with these figures in mind that lead to each other and then they give the meaning what's going on but you then relate vertically of the axis to the author, and that's the God in whom you have faith along with Abraham, along with all these different characters that we've seen in the story, because the fundamental object of faith is, again, this author, this God that brings life from the dead and uh, brought everything out of nothing. Uh, so, but that's the sea and the water is just one figure we can follow. Uh, we can also follow the image of uh, God as a husband and a king, innocent the image of innocent lambs, sacrifice for the guilty. The point, however, is to read the Bible always in the light of the main character and author, Jesus, who was in the beginning with Moses and all, Jesus, who beginning, and this is the quote from his uh, appearing to the road on the road to Emmaus to uh, just these two uh, followers of him that don't know what's going on in this whole passion scene. And so he goes through the Bible to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So that's Jesus interpreting to these people on the road to Emmaus that everything in the Bible is about himself. That's what I mean by reading the Bible in terms of the author of it, is to read it all in terms of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who gives it authority, who authored it and authored all of creation. Another way to, uh, to, to read scripture is to notice that it's a strange sort of story because it's very thin in details. Things just happen, and it's not said why. So your responsibility as is, is the reader of this text is you need to ask, why did that happen? But don't expect to be able to answer it right there. But along with this temporal axis of the Bible, you've got to ask the question. No, it's a good question because it's just obviously there to be asked. And keep it in mind as you proceed and wait for an answer. So if you wait for the answer, more details will be shed on that question. And if it's the good question, images will repeat and go back to it again and again. And then finally, you will see the fullness of that answer is found in Jesus. But you only see how Jesus, so to speak, fulfills the question by seeing the continuity of the of the questions and the provisional answers as you proceed. This is another way of describing types, types or figures. So, for example, let's go to uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beforehand, they were naked and unashamed. And uh, then when they eat, it says their eyes are opened. What does that mean? Uh, 
All we know is that now they cover themselves. In other words, they are ashamed. So one of the questions one should ask is, what are they ashamed of after they ate? What What is it that they uh, somehow now need to hide, whereas before they didn't hide? Um, well, th- one of the major clues you have, if you keep that question in mind, you could say, well, it doesn't say what they're ashamed of. They're just ashamed of something. They're hiding something. But what they do is they cover this whatever they could deem now shameful with vegetable skins, fig leaves, but then God covers them with animal skins. So now this may be two provisional answers to that question. And God seems to choose the answer as it's tied in with animal skins. Since nobody's allowed to eat animals at this point, they're just eating uh, plants, vegetation. God seems to think they need to cover their naked with something that involves bloodshed, killing an animal. So the first thing to die in the Bible is an animal. Okay, seems like a not that important detail, but it's there. Okay, well, Adam and Eve have a child, two children. In fact, they're twins, you could say, Cain and Abel. Uh, one day they decide to make a sacrifice to God. He doesn't ask for it. They decide to do it. Uh, Cain makes a sacrifice of grain, kind of like fig leaves, vegetation. Abel makes a sacrifice of an animal. He's a keeper of sheep. So he's got to kill this animal. And God approves of Abel's sacrifice, doesn't approve of Cain's sacrifice. Again, you should ask, well, why would that be? It doesn't say. But you, as a reader of this, have to ask the question, so then you can attend details. One detail you can do is attend backwards to why did God cover their nakedness of the animal skins. seems to be why God uh, accepted Abel's sacrifice. Uh, now, what this means then is there's some attention drawn to what Abel did that Cain didn't do. What did he have to do? He had to kill an animal to do it. Okay, killing an animal. Hmm. Well, what happens in the sequel? Cain kills his brother. Abel doesn't kill his brother. Well, maybe that sheds light on this whole death and bloody thing we've been seeing. So uh, why does Cain kill his brother? Well, his countenance fell. He wasn't ashamed. He was flushed with anger when God didn't accept his sacrifice. Uh, so this flushing with anger or this withdrawing of shame seems to be tied into bloodshed. The anger that Cain had when he killed his uh, brother Abel. Maybe it goes into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe this whole nature of sin in the story is that humans want to have their own private knowledge of good and evil. To have a private knowledge of good and evil rather than a shared knowledge of good and evil is to think that you then can judge God, your brother, everybody in the light of your notion of good and evil, and that you then can bring about justice in the condemnation of that, condemning others. Well, that's what Cain clearly does to his brother Abel. What does Abel do? Well, he may have the same thing that he's embarrassed at, that Adam and Eve had. But what does he do instead of killing his brother? He kills an animal. What does he seem to know when he kills an animal? Cain, in one sense, was trying to bribe God, you might say, because they, why did they do it? Well, I'm going to give God something because he'll maybe give me something I want. But whereas Abel decides, oh, I'm not going to bribe God. Instead, I'm making a sacrifice for my benefit and not God's benefit. He does it for his benefit because somehow he knows there's something in him that he needs to hide. And it may be that he has a private knowledge of good and evil, that there's something problematic. He may want to murder his brother as much as Cain wants to murder him or even God, but he knows it's better that I kill an animal instead of uh, killing my brother. Or later we'll see God himself. So that seems to be why God approves of Abel's sacrifice, that he somehow directs this hostility, this 
this unshareable knowledge of good and evil because it's private. And he says that's unlivable. So he kills an animal to deal with it. It's better to kill an animal than a human being. Cain does just the opposite. Well, God approves that. So that then leads you to the future. Now track animals, track animals that are killed. And later on, you'll see Abraham has a son. God tells him to sacrifice his son, the son that he loves. Why is he told to do that? Somehow, it's tied into the fact that finally he doesn't have to. He kills an animal instead. Well, this is just one strand that will lead you to the future. It'll, it'll lead then to the Passover lamb that God says, if you kill this lamb, the angel of death will pass over your firstborn, like Isaac was the firstborn. And then you will, uh, it, it, by passing over that one, God won't pass over the firstborn of the Egyptians. Well, that leads to the whole sacrificial system later on where you're killing an animal. But then finally, what's going to be, again, when you get to Jesus at the, at the center of the story, is that God is going to call Jesus his beloved son, the same way Isaac was the beloved son. The first mention of love in the Bible is your son, your beloved son with Isaac. Jesus will be the beloved son. He will be the firstborn. And the angel of death will not pass over his firstborn on the night of Passover. That is going to be the culmination that answers that question. Why does why does God cover their nakedness with animal skins because that very night Jesus will die and the angel of death will not pass over him. And the moment Jesus dies in the gospel market says the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil takes you back then to the animal skins that now somehow one can see the problem. One has a private knowledge of good and evil. That is what leads to death and unshareability between human beings. But by God, not sparing his own firstborn son because, again, who he is. He is the one that can die and come back from the dead and bring forth a new heart in Adam and Eve, a, non, a non-private knowledge of good and evil, a shareable knowledge of good and evil that happens the very moment his son dies because of who he is. He brings life from the dead. He is the one that can author new hearts, new non-private knowledges of good and evil, shareable knowledge of good and evil in all humanity insofar as they are baptized in his baptism, which is the baptism of his death. So this is just tracking the one image of animals, slain animals, lambs, bloodshed and murder, and how it's tied into private knowledge of good and evil. But then there's other strands that one can track through in the same sort of way. Take me from the apple to the Eucharist. The apple to the Eucharist? Uh, Well, it's not the apple so much as the, it's the, the idea of the Eucharist is that Jesus' body is shareable. In other words, before Adam and Eve, when they were naked and unashamed, the two were one flesh. So there's two bodies, but they weren't private bodies. They also didn't have a private knowledge of good and evil. So they had shareable bodies. Once they ate, they were ashamed. The, the very uh, skin shows that they now have, so to speak, unshareable bodies. You have my body, you have your body, my private idea of good and evil, your private idea of good and evil. The bodies can't be shared. And so there's, a, so to speak, a war between the bodies. As you see, one brother kills another brother later on. Okay, so the lack of shareable bodies has to be overcome. How could it be overcome? Well, God himself will become a human being. And as a human being, he will, so to speak, marry all of humanity. This is tracking the theme of marriage that we haven't done, but it goes back to Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed, man and woman. Uh, Jesus is going to replay that by mar- by his body, who is like his Eve in the 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, he will obey his father, unlike Jesus who disobeyed his father. Uh, Adam, yeah. Uh, and by by obeying his father and choosing to die under the cross, he then gives the meaning of it, the Eucharist, that his body will be broken and his blood will be shed because, again, who he is, the author of all of reality, he is the one that can bring back that shareable body that has been lost since Adam and Eve ate. And now everybody, through partaking of his body and blood, now have a shareable body and blood. And so all of humanity now is infinitely shareable with their knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge that Christ had when he obeyed his father. We now know things are good through conversation with our father. And we have this infinitely shareable body where we can say uh, my own about everyone else rather than this is privately mine and that's yours. This is all ours, the body of Christ, essentially, stretched across space and time. And it also then allows us to tie ourselves in with a body, say, of Abraham, the body of Abel, the body of Moses, the body of all these people of the past, we share with their bodies across space and time, again, because of who Christ is and his coming back from the dead and him sacrificing. And so then, insofar as we eat his body and drink his blood, we, as Aquinas will say when he describes scripture, he'll say, because God is the author of scripture, only God can connect things to things. The most important thing that he connects is bodies. So I can partake and share with Abraham's body, David's body, all this cross space and time because of what we see and what we celebrate in the Eucharist. And again, this is, as Aquinas makes clear, this is tied into God being the author of Scripture. Human beings can connect words to things, words to words, but only God uh, can connect things to things. So he has to be the author of Scripture. Otherwise, this is just a mythical story that's tapping us into some understanding of how words relate to things, but it really doesn't allow me to be connected to people that are dead, whether it be my grandfather, whether it be Abraham, uh, whether it be David, they are dead and gone and I don't share with their bodies. But if God's the author of scripture, I literally, it's as though I'm in the same room with them in the common shared space and time. Because relative to the author of the story, we all share this common shared novel that he wrote along with the world that we're in. But vertically, that axis of God as the author, we can share uh, with all humanity across space and time. So you're either with a the you're either basically the first atom and you don't share, and all bodies are cut off. Or as Aristotle says, solitary and at war with one another. Or you partake of the second atom, and that becomes a shareable humanity. All humanity lives through Christ. And in that sense, we are all one flesh. And the Eucharist is the celebration of being one flesh. By eating his murdered flesh, it overcomes our past, which is part of the plot, John the Baptist. But it leads to our future, the new heavens and new earth that will never pass away. And that'll be the final. It's as though we transformed out of the novel. and Now we are uh, living with the author for eternity. Uh, or we can just stay in the novel and never get out of it, and that'd be living with the first Adam. And then you finally die, it falls apart. There's no unity you can see because you're a character in the story. But you can partake of the unity of the story by transcending the vertical axis through dying with the author, rising with the author, and understanding the text from that vantage point. So, so to back up, you could say 
how do you read the story? You don't read the story just as scriptures, as something written, as authored. You read the story with that character, Jesus, because Jesus and who he is is what the story is all about. And the scriptures are fulfilled by Christ, but the scriptures, all they write about is Christ. So we, in one sense, go beyond the scriptures through the one who wrote the scriptures. And he's the one that we share in rather than a religion of the book. The Bible is not talking about, it's about a religion of the author. Hence, that's the authority of Scripture. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S institute.org. Copyright 2019, the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit organization.